This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. I'm so lucky today to have yet another fantastic guest. And this one's a big catch for us because Vitaly Katzenelson is a fantastic value long-term investor. Well, I should let him really describe his style of investing. He's the CEO of IMA, which is an investment management firm in Denver, Colorado in the US. And he's the author of The Little Book of Sideways Markets, which is a fantastic book in this series of short, easy to read, easy to understand books about investing and many other things. So that's a great one to pick up. Vitaly, thank you so much for being here on Invested. Danielle, it's my such a great pleasure. Thank you, really. Well, so I want to dive right in because... Okay, so I just introduced you as an investor, but I'm always interested in how people get to that point in their lives. Like, How did you, as a kid, start out? Now, you weren't born in the US, right? You came from where? Well, so yes, as my... Tiny little accent will tell you. I was not born. You're right. Yeah, I was not born in the United States. So I was born in Russia, but I wasn't just born in Russia. I was born in Soviet Russia. So mm. at the time where pre-cap, you know, pre-capitalism, you know, kind of you know, socialist Russia. So my relationship with money was very different than uh, you would, you know, as, as, as I'm sure you would expect. My parents, so my, so we lived in, so this is kind of, so I have to give you a background to understand Yeah, this. Give, me, give me all the background. So we lived in Murmansk, Russia. Murmansk is a city very up north above the polar uh, Arctic Circle, where it's very, very cold. There's very little sunlight during the winter time. So mm. you have something called polar nights and uh, nobody wants to live there because it's too cold. Uh, but the reason, you know, Russia... Yeah, more in Mormons still exist because it has the one of the largest port in Russia that that has access to the you know that has uh, that doesn't freeze during winter time. So it's oh. very strategic to Russia. So, so and there are ships coming in and out all year round. Yes, and in fact, the, you know the the reason Americans may know about it because for two reasons. Number one. Uh, America sent uh, Russia supp- supplies during World War II through Murmansk. Mm. So when you heard about the U-boat battles, you know, you know, during World War II, a lot of them happened, you know, in the bar- you know, kind of in supplies going to Murmansk from the United States. Uh, and number two, and that's number one. Number two, the hunt for the Red October. The Red October, that submarine, which was fictional, by the way, is from Murmansk. So <laughs> anyway, anyway, but the reason I'm bringing this up because so nobody wanted to, wanted to live there. So any, everybody who lived there got paid twice as much for the same job they would have done anywhere else in Russia. But and remember, why would this nobody was, want to live there if it's a thriving port? And, uh, you know, it sounds like it's also a military base. Yeah, because Just because of that, the incredibly long, it's dark, a long, yeah, yes, <laughs> terrible it's, winters. So, yes, Just because of that, <laughs> yeah. So humans tend to like warm weather, and they used to tend to like the uh, the uh, 
sunlight. So, uh, yeah, so that's why California is one is the most popular state in the United States, not the Alaska for you know, for that matter. So it's like imagine if Alaska was the most popular state. Well, that kind of makes no sense, right? So it's kind of like that. So all it's right. a all right to entice people to live there. You know, everybody who lived there got paid twice. You know, basically twice as much as anywhere else. Mm. And remember, this was the Soviet Russia where some bu- bureaucrat in Moscow decided how much money everybody makes for. Yeah. So my, so my, 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 both of my parents were scientists. My father taught electrical engineering in a Murmansk Marine Academy. He was a PhD mm-hmm. and my mom was a physicist. So uh, she worked at the research institute. So, so they both, my, you know, my father really got paid because he was a PhD and it's like, you get extra points for that. And you, and you know, and your bureaucrats decided that, you know, they wanted to get people to get a PhD. And so, uh, so you know, he had paid extra for that, etc. So we made more money, two, two, maybe sometimes three times more money than people who lived in other parts of Russia, doing the same thing what my parents did. Wow. So that's probably so, a huge change in how you lived. Well, it, yes, except one thing. So the problem is when you live in a you know, when you live in a city and you don't see a lot of sunlight, and the summers are not that warm either. Hmm. So you want to get out of it. Like, you know, and so my parents would leave in June and come back in late August. And think about traveling for three months. That's a very expensive proposition. So all the savings we would have, you know, my parents would have accumulated, you know, throughout the uh, you know, fall, winter, and spring would be completely spent during summertime uh-huh. because traveling was expensive. Um, and uh, so my parents, you know, and now now you also have to understand this. You know, my, my 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 both my parents were intellectuals, and they kind of my father, in addition to being a very talented uh, scientist, he is an incredible painter. So he's a uh, so he kind of your combination of left brain and right brain. So he valued, he, you know, my parents always looked at money as a as kind of a necessary evil, but still an evil in the sense that they never valued money that much. So that was not, you know, it was, you know, it was never something that was valued in my family. And uh, they were, you know, and also remember, this is, you know, this is the time where you had to stay in line to get eggs or toilet paper for hours. So this is the time when Russia was still you know, struggling. Um you know, so my parents always struggled, despite having this money, we still struggled to put food, food on the table because there was deficit of, you know, just things we take for granted today. Because so it was the, hard to just access those particular products. Like yeah, so the, there was a shortage of basics, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so mm-hmm. the so Soviet Russia, it's, it's a command-controlled economy. By the way, whenever people praise socialism, you, they can talk to me and I'll tell you how great it is. Okay. <laughs> Trust me. It sounds great, except it's absolutely horrible because there was a, you know, because there was a government basically ran everything and uh, there was shortage of food. So you go to the store and uh, there were two types of sugar. The one that cost uh, 96 cents and, and, a, and, a, and a ruble or four that, and that was like that for, you know, so those two sugars, those were the brands, basically. My, my, my mom, you know, sent me to the store. She, she would just tell me, get the cheapest one. And, uh, and it was the, the 96 kpegs sugar like this for 20 years. So the price never changed. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so, the, uh, it, so my parents never really valued money very much. I'm super intrigued that they didn't 
value money? Because I feel like there's, and tell me if this is wrong or or right on with your experience. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's probably two reactions to living in that environment. Either you become obsessed with money and how you can get more of it and how in this uh, situation where people really can't find a way to get ahead without going to the black market, you would find mm-hmm. ways to do that. Or you go as your parents did and just say, well, it doesn't mean anything. I'm not going to really get ahead in life. So let's just ignore it. Is that kind no, of I, how things no, I, I, no, I think the... I think they looked at money slightly differently. I think it was always secondary. So in other words, it was it was a necessity. But... And they wanted to make sure we had enough to kind of cover our basic needs. But it was never their drive, ever. Like it was... Uh, Mm-hmm. It was never their drive, and I think they valued experiences and uh, cultural, you know, you know, just experiences, cultural experiences or knowledge, much more than they valued money. So this is not necessarily saying that they were, um, they were still practical about this because you know, but they, but, but money was like we never really. Like uh, and also, this is they're pro- probably products of our society then, right? Because you know we live in a society where, because <laughs> when when you think about it from the government perspective, since nobody has money, you probably want to de-emphasize it. So, um, yeah, yeah exactly. and so 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 that post probably had a huge impact. It's not just my parents were idealists, mm-hmm. but it's also that you know you had also the government propaganda, you know. So all these things together. So so the money was kind of never, you know. We never had a lot of it, you know. We still, you know, because you know, we still never had a lot of it, and we had a lot of people who, uh, you know, we had. A, my father had a lot of friends who had a lot more money than he did. He did, but it was just never the topic. It's one of the topics we really discussed. What made them move to that town if not for the larger paychecks? Oh, uh, so uh, so they, they moved for a very different reason. Um, so so I'm Jewish. Um, and so my father, you know, when he was uh, 17, 18 years old, 18 years old, lived in Moscow. And this was 1950s. And um, when, he, uh, when he tried to apply to universities, they would not accept him because he was Jewish. Oh. So the only place would take him was kind of, a, at the time, God forsaken Murmansk uh, oh. because they needed anybody. They would take anybody. So they, you did not even have to take inference exam, I think. Even though in, the interesting part was my father was um, when he was very good at math all his life. In fact, he was so good in math in high school that he would tutor other kids. Every school he applied to, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Moscow, they failed him in math, which is ironic. What? So, yeah. So, so anyway, so, you know, it just, you know, it was a, you know, it was a Out lot of... Pure this. discrimination. Yes, after, yeah, after, after uh, yes, pure discrimination. So the only reason we ended, you know, my father ended up in Murmansk because that was in, you, the only, univer- you know, maybe he was mm-hmm. a little bit rebellious. And, uh, and that was the only place that would take him. Um, and so, and then he met my mom. And uh, so she moved from, you know, from a very nice, you know, warm family, you know, surrounded you know, by a lot of, you know, cousins, et cetera, uh, to in the middle of nowhere just because she loved my father. So that's, that was it. So it was not the money. It's, the, the, you know, the money was not the reason why they, they moved to Murmansk originally. Um, Got it. And I don't, you know, I'll be honest, I think the, it's a, one of those things that, you know, uh, 
some people would argue move there for the money and then realize maybe it wasn't even worth it just because it's really very cold harsh winters and no sunlight and i it's incredibly depressing so i'll I'll give an example so i would go to school at maybe 10 o'clock in the morning and come back home at six and sometime in the middle of the day sun would come out for 30 minutes and i would have missed it so, so basically, you're subjected to darkness for, I don't know, three or four months. Complete darkness, basically, for three or four months a year. Wow. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like living like that. And here's the best part. I, since I didn't know any better, it seems absolutely fine. It's, I, I, look, sure. at my child, I yeah. look at my childhood, and I, was, I had a very happy childhood, despite if my kids now had to you know, live there, I'm sure they would be morning and about this because you know well they're used to 300 days of sunshine in denver colorado that's right <laughs> how old were you when you left russia i left russia when, when I, in 1991 when i was 18 years old oh so you really spent all of your formative years in russia then yes i mean that's why i still have an accent if i left when i was 12 or 13 the accent probably would be gone yeah i would not have an accent but i think when you moved to another country after 13 years old. It's very Mm -hmm. difficult to get rid of accent. Mm -hmm. And what brought your family to the U.S.? My father had a, has, still has, a younger sister who left Russia in 1979. And uh, she basically bought tickets to go to Israel through, I think, Vienna. When they got to Vienna, she went to American embassy and said, I really... I said I want to go to Israel, but I really want to come to the United States. And she, like there's a movie with Robin Williams called Moscow on the Hudson. She was basically, like she could have played a role in this movie because <laughs> you know, she was one of those people who moved to you know, Brooklyn in late 70s, early 80s. <laughs> when she left when I was maybe six or seven years old. So she has two sons. And I, so I, they were my favorite cousins and suddenly they're gone. And for seven years, my parents were telling me that my aunt moved to Siberia. <laughs> and and she, they were telling me this for an interesting reason. So I, so, and I, and, they, and I, you know, because I kept asking, where are my cousins? And they said, why well, then Siberia? And it's very far away. So that's why we don't see them. So, you know, I kept asking this question for a while. And then I kind of forgot about it. And, just, you know, and then maybe in 1987, 1988, the Cold War is kind of subsiding at this point. And then I find out that my aunt did not really move to Siberia, but moved to New York. And, and, and honest to God, and this may sound idiotic, and my first, the first word comes out of my mouth, first sentence, oh, she's a traitor. Oh, you know, wow. the, and because the, I was a, you know, I was a product of, uh, you know, I've been, I grew up in Russia and anybody who lives, you know, this, you know, terrific country and goes to United States is a traitor. That's, that's how I, I was brainwashed. The, you know, sworn evil. enemy of any yes. Russian, of course. The evil empire. Um, I mean, it would be the same as an American. If somebody went to Russia at that time, you'd say, oh, yeah, they, they're, they've gone to the other side. That's right. Then what happens is kind of interesting. So uh, in Murmansk, in the basements of apartment buildings, these tiny little movie theaters pop up. Just imagine like you have a, an apartment that's maybe like two or three bedroom apartments. It has a large room, right? And you literally have three or four TVs connected to, to a VCR. You can buy a ticket 
and they play movies. They literally play American movies dubbed by the same voice. So the same voice plays all the parts, narrates all the parts. Genius. I love it. Okay. And so this movie, you start seeing American movies that you couldn't see in the in theaters. And suddenly you kind of discovered so they were just that just bootlegged in. Yeah, they just you literally just bring a, you know, they buy a tape in America, uh-huh. translate it, make hundreds of copies. And if you have a VCR and five TVs, you have a movie theater. And um you know, and that you no, know, that was Russia then and you know, obviously it's a lot more advanced now. But you watch these movies and it transports you into you kind of you start to understand that Americans are not that much different from us. Mm-hmm. You know you understand that it's really, you know, there is absolutely no reason to hate them. After a while, like, you know, kind of got over the fact that my aunt is a traitor and I realized that, you know, there is, she did the right thing. And um, in early... Had they kept that from you? Had they kept that information from you that she had moved to the U.S. because they also thought that she was a traitor? No. So the reason they did this, and this is very important, because if it would tarnish my career it would talk basically if you oh, have a relative sure. so if you have a relative that left russia like this that basically turned you know that put breaks in your career my aunt's sister uh worked in the ministry of agriculture in moscow and after her sister left she was demoted oh. my father got spared because i think we were just too far away <laughs> but even so, when I so when I was in my my brothers when they were in Russia, they were they went to Marina Karibi where my father taught, and so they traveled as a on the cargo boats to other countries. It was a very difficult process for them to get visas to you know, if, you know because you know the government. It was very it was, it was a very difficult process, and my father had to go to KGB and had to say. Well, my son, you know, yes, yeah, you know, my sons have to fill out an application and it's gonna ask him, mm. Do you have any relatives that live outside of Russia? And my father said, Ask them. I don't know what to put I don't know what to put in because you know, I don't want them to get in trouble for lying, but at the same time I this may hurt them. And I my father told me a story how he talked to this KGB guy who said, You know what? Just don't tell them not to put anything because we already know. <laughs> and we don't want you know, <laughs> and you don't and you don't really don't want people around them to know that. So because people actually look down and so if you if if if, if you had relatives living in different countries, people actually looked uh, you know, like just like I looked at my aunt as a traitor, mm-hmm. your friends would look at you as you're kind of related to a traitor. So that would not you know not necessarily be good for your social image either. So so that's yeah. why my parents hid it from you know, from me. Wow. Yeah. So it's that very, I mean, it's just, it's very different than an American way of thinking, which is why I asked the question. But now that you're saying it, it's so obvious. Of course, you would be held responsible for something that your relative does. As, right. as huge as defecting, essentially, to the, the enemy. That's right. And I would think with your brothers on ships like that, there would be a very high risk of defection. No, that's, no, that's, that's absolutely true. So that's... Yes. So they, yeah. you know, well, if you watch Moscow and Hudson, that's kind of that movie really kind of highlights exactly like that environment, that environment of, you know, so they, yes. Oh, I got to watch it. So you were there, you heard that she had gone to the U.S. finally, you had this reaction um, and then started watching movies 
and learning about U.S. culture. And then what mm-hmm. happened? Well, then I'm like, okay, well, they're not that much different. The Cold War ended for the most part. And, mm-hmm. you know, Americans stopped being the enemy. And then unthinkable happened. Uh, my, you know, my, uh, my aunt said, well, actually, now I can invite you to come to the United States directly. And it's a very easy process. And my father, my father looked at what my future looked like if I grew up in Russia and thought you know, it would be much better if my brothers and I would move to the United States. And so we did. And so, you know, to, to great sacrifice to himself, actually. And this is a, something that I'm um, very thankful for because my father taught in the same, like in the top university in Murmansk for 30 years. He was one of the most like incredibly respected person in, in like in the in, in in the city. Like uh, I remember, I would walk like my father. Like uh, I would walk with my father uh, from from university home, and would I don't know. My father loved loved to walk, so we would walk together. And four or five times, he would meet somebody and would talk for you know ten or fifteen minutes with each person. Everybody knew him and everybody respected him. So that was an incredible sacrifice because he moved to the United States when he was 58. It was impossible for him to... He he studied English for a year or two before we moved here. And he studied English in the United States, but he had incredible vocabulary. But when you're 58, it's very difficult to learn a new language and mm-hmm. especially you know well enough to teach so he never really so that was a huge sacrifice for him luckily he also painted and he painted uh since he was seven years old and he was you know he's a very gifted artist and he was able to make a living here as a as an artist uh so this is wow yeah, so that's you know but he didn't know that no so the thing is that was a huge leap right he did not know that so he basically uh, took an incredible risk for us. And, uh, you know, and I still cannot tell you how much I appreciate that. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be 58. Yeah. Your country is essentially breaking up. Yeah. And you decide to leave everything and go to a completely foreign place where you barely speak the language. It's a... I think that's what you do for your kids. And I think, you know, I think that's, you know, that's, you know, that's you know, exactly what happened to us. And I'll tell you this. So the, we come to United States, uh, my father, my stepmother, who at the time was maybe 52, 53, she, she gets, you know, she was a doctor in Russia. So she gets a job basically, you know, doing the room service, you know, cleaning the rooms at a hotel, you know, that's, really? you know, yeah, yeah. And she was and, a doctor. Yeah. And here's the interesting part. My, you know, my, you know, my father felt so bad for her that he would help come and help her clean rooms, Aww. just as a, yeah. So he was, which is, yeah. And uh, so sweet. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think you know, um, I think my my parents set a very high uh, bar for me. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let's see. So you have to remember to at least do the dishes at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, and I, and which I think that's probably one of the most. Yeah. That's. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't moving for themselves. I mean, no. he, I'm sure, could have had a decent retirement in Russia after. 
Well, and he could have been teaching. Career. He yes, he could have been teaching that he was, you know, he was well into his late seventies. You, know, mm. you know, so it's so really he was looking for you guys, for you kids. At did he think that there just weren't opportunities for you there? So the time Russia was, you know, kind of falling apart. The, it was getting very. The crime rate was going up. The the mafia was kind of starting to take over. And so it's looked very, very uncertain. You know, I was 18, but I was uh, already uh, finishing a technical college, doing something absolutely hated, which was uh, mechanical engineering. And uh, my brothers had, you know, both my brothers had, you know, uh, my, my older brother had a profession uh, in, in electrical engineering, which he absolutely hated. But he, the only reason he went to, so I went to technical college, and my brother went to Marine Academy, just so you know, we wouldn't have to go to Russian army. So, so it's a, so it seems like we were given a second chance, kind of to, to find something we love. When people say Stay America alive. is like, yeah, well, it's not. It wasn't, you know, I, I, possibly yes, but I think it was. You know, so when the people say America is a country of uh, opportunities, I, I get that, right? Because I had an opportunity to make my choices of you know whom I wanted to be. At the time in Russia, I really had very few choices. Then you know, I appreciate probably more than people who were born here. How was money talked about? Like as you were a teenager growing up, you said that your parents didn't really value money that much. It wasn't a goal for them. How did you start to think about it and talk about money as you became? more of an adult was that was it something in your mind that you thought okay i want to do better for myself this is important i see people out there with money and i want to be like them or was it the opposite so i think at first i probably um well so the just to the when we when you know when we when we moved to the united states we were basically in the beginning we were scraping the kind of the poverty line right so you know we you know, I had a, I went to high school and I had a job working at a, a restaurant called Village Inn, which is very similar to Dennis. Wait, 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 and wait I, hold on. So you had already gone to college, yeah, yeah, essentially so yeah. in Russia. Yes. Uh, and then yeah, you so, went to high school when yes. you moved to the U.S. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I moved to Denver. Yeah. So I moved to Denver, and uh, if I go to college. I would have to pay in uh, out of state tuition because you have to live in Denver. For, yeah, so I'm so, sorry, that is so crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was almost yeah, I was almost 19 years old. I was almost 19 years old, right? And I'm the and I'm the probably the oldest kid in high school. And, Did you uh, speak English well enough to go to high no. school? No. Well, that's that's why I went, right? So I went because I wanted to learn English. Ah, oh, okay. So I my English was good enough to buy cigarettes and milk, you know. And, and they would and, let you into a public high school as an immigrant who was 19 years old and had already been to college. Uh, yes, I. Yeah. I, <laughs> now, now that you ask this question, you know, now that you pose this question this way, I'm I question that decision. Yeah, I think yes, you probably <laughs> charmed your way in. Yeah. Uh, I go to high school for a year to get my English to level, so at least I can go to college. And but while I was going to high school, I was basically bussing tables on Friday and Saturday night, like night. When I say night, literally from a ten o'clock, like from like. Uh, the restaurant, the village inn was open uh, uh, at night, and uh, the bars in Denver closed at two. So at two, at two o'clock in the morning, there was a huge inflow of people coming to, oh, yeah. uh, maybe at 12, I forget, maybe it was 12, I forget, but huge inflows of people come for 
buy pancakes. I, I, I don't I know it well. I was one of the jerks <laughs> who showed up and ate the pancakes. Totally. All right. Uh, all right. <laughs> well, I was happy to serve you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so we so in the beginning we were just really money was. So when when my parents when I say my parents did not value money, it's just money did not remember in Russia at the time it didn't buy much, right? And uh, right, so, and it was secondary for them. Here. And we had enough money to live on. So in Russia, here this was different, right? Because here we were kind of fighting for our survival. And yeah, so I don't hear you saying that they actually didn't value money. I think it was just that they didn't have it as a priority, as something that they cared about getting more of. As exactly. No, it enough. was exactly. And I and I, but I think in the definition, I guess you know what it comes down to. Their definition of enough was different. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's mm-hmm. what you know, different were wanting more all the time. I think their enough was they had enough to that you know that it covered their basic needs and that was enough. And I think that's so. I think the so when we moved to United States, our definition of enough was probably still not that much different, except they had a lot less. So I had to work a part-time job. Uh, um, and I, every penny I made, uh, I brought, you know, I brought to my parents. Uh, my stepmother had to work at a hotel, you know, making minimum wage, and so so did my brother. So, in the beginning, it was very very difficult uh, financially. But looking back, I don't think we actually felt, you know, maybe, you know, looking back now that, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't feel the pain, or at least, at least my parents never showed the pain of that. Um, hmm. Hmm. But I'm sure, you know, and uh, so once you kind of go above the kind of uh, poverty line, you know, once you start covering your basic needs, then it's, you know, then your relationship with money changes right now because now mm-hmm. it starts buying you extra things mm-hmm. like, you know, and it starts buying you vacations, better cars, et cetera. And, you know, For yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's, Still, my, you know, I think my, my my parents had a very modest life, and and I lived with them until I was twenty eight until I got married. And this is which is very Russian thing to do, by the way. This is very kind of Russian, maybe Jewish thing to do when you, you know, you live with your parents until you get married, and then you know, then you mm-hmm. get out of the house. It's so, a very uh, immigrant thing to do, you know, save money, do what's the most efficient for everybody. That's true, and I, you know, that's true, and I think it was kind of part of Russian culture as well, uh, mm. which is maybe was driven by necessity in Russia, where just because it was a much poorer country. So, but I lived with them until I was twenty-eight, and so when I lived with them, I still helped them. You know, I still gave them a good chunk of my paycheck. They always had a modest lifestyle, and they always uh, valued travel and experiences more than they valued material things. Mm. And I think I kind of transitioned to that myself uh, over time. In fact, I wrote this article about this. Uh, when I got married, I was 28 years old. I had a friend, Mark. I still have it. You know, we're still good friends, which is almost 20 years ago. And Mark took me and my wife for lunch. And he basically told us, explain what budgeting is. And so now we're going into personal finance, not investing, but Hope it's okay with you, Danielle. It, ma- it, it all affects all of it. All right, all right. So and we all so, deal with <laughs> budgeting. Yeah, by the way. Yeah, yeah. No, actually, I'm having so much fun talking about personal finance because I talk about investing too much anyway. So this is <laughs> uh, this is a, 
this is new. Yeah, this is a great new topic. So anyway, he takes out lunch and he explains to me what budgeting is. So he basically says, you know, and just just I just want to give you a, uh, kind of uh, explaining the picture at the time. I was 28 years old. I have my master's degree. I have I'm a CFA and I'm teaching investments at University of Colorado. So here's my friend Mark sits okay. me you know, sits me sits me down and explains okay. me what budgeting is. At first, I was a little bit insulted because I'm like, well, I kind of I got that, you know, like you know, I I know what you know what what financial. Yeah, I would are. think you'd be very aware as somebody who you know didn't have a ton of money how yeah. to sort of divide up the pot. Uh, in a very strategic way. Exactly. Except Mark's budgeting lesson was a little bit more comprehensive than oh. you would think. And his lesson was, so he said, well, you sit down and you write down your expenses, how much your rent is, you know, you know all the expenses you, you, can, you, know, you can think of. But then you say, well, but then you also think about the future expenses you're going to have, which are, you know, you're going to, at some point, you're going to have the car you have today, you're going to have to replace it how much it's going to cost you. Let's, just, let's say it's going to cost you $15,000. So you don't want it to come as a shock, even though it's going to be three years from now, five years from now. So you want to start putting, like you want to create what he called a sinking fund and start putting that money away. So when the three years, when you need to replace your car, you don't have to borrow money, mm-hmm. but you actually save the money. Or at some point, you're going to need to buy a house and, same thing with down payment. At some point, you know, you're going to need to spend, you know, you need to save for your retirement. Again, that's a future expense that's going to come. So you have to start doing now. But you're also going to have things like, you're also going to have things like incidental things that happen on a semi-regular basis. We just don't know when. Like when at some point you're going to buy new furniture. So you create, a, you know, and you figure out how much you spend over you know, a year on this and you put money aside for that. And only after you counted for all that, you have any money left for discretionary, you know, for discretionary expenses. Mm. So and so that was different than how you had thought about it before. That's right. Yeah, and how most people do, you know, how most people think about it. And so that made us, you know, uh, you know, so my wife and I just get married. That made, you know, that made us, uh, because I, you know, the whole, the whole point of the, you know, the whole point of the budget is this. It's a tool of, of it's a tool to how you prioritize what you value. And let me explain what I mean. Today, I figured out that, you know, we as a family value four things the most. Health, education, time, and experiences. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me, so the, so when we have a budget, it's not that we don't have a budget for this expenses. These budgets are so much looser for us because these things actually bring us the most, you know, we feel they're important for us. At the same time, bigger house or fancier cars, et cetera, are less important to us. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the reason it's important, once you realize what you value, then when you, so the, every dollar I spend, on experiences brings me more joy than that same dollar would buy me if I bought a piece of furniture. So, and that's what budgeting helped us to do, kind of prioritize what we value. When I look at health, to me, for a long, long time, I could never work out. Like I, could, I, like I never worked out basically for more than a month. Like just never, you know, it just wasn't me. So I, about a year and a half, I got a trainer which is not in a cheap proposition, but I've been working out consistently twice a week 
two or three times a week for a year and a half. There is no way I would do this if I did not have a trainer. You may think it's, some people may think it's frivolous because, and I would argue for a lot of people it is because they have the willpower to go to the gym. I didn't. And every time I tried it, I failed at it. So that would be health. And also, you know, when I go to the grocery store, I don't think about how much money I spend on tomatoes or, you know, or I just buy the best ones. Mm-hmm. So that's the health category. Um, then so you're um, investing in what's important to you. And I think what I hear you saying with this budgeting process and in choosing your priorities is that you're choosing literally where to invest your money in a way that's going to bring you the most short-term and long-term happiness. Exactly. And, and I'm security. thoughtful about it. So, yeah. yeah. So the, most of us are like, so, so most of us, we just kind of go through life and we are spending money without thinking much about it, you know? And so I've been mindful about it. And then, and then what are you right? I'm trying to maximize the return of mm-hmm. like, if like, the, um, you know, like if a return of happiness, I guess, or if, you know, yeah. <laughs> the most amount of happiness per dollar. Okay? Yeah, you know? I think so. Okay. And then the same thing is time. I find that, and this may sound horrible, but I really don't enjoy yard work. I really hate it. Fair enough. So I would rather be doing anything else but doing yard work. It's just me. It doesn't mean that's the same thing for everybody. So, you know, we hire Sometimes I hire my kids, you know, but a lot of times I hire somebody else to clean our backyard. Okay, so that's how I buy time. And my kids basically can spend as much money as they want on books. Mm-hmm. We think very, you know, uh, as an example for that, I spend money on personal coaches, et cetera, because I think it's important. And then we have experiences. And to me, that's probably the most important category because... The money you spend on experiences, you know, that gives me the most joy. And that's not just joy at the time, but also joy when I recall those experiences. So we, you know, we spend a lot of money going skiing, for instance, you know, which is not a cheap proposition. Let me clarify something. So this is a, you know, investment guy in Denver. And so everybody assumes that I make a lot of money because I'm an investment guy in Denver. And that's not the point of the discussion here. Discussion is that to do this, I had to give up something else. And so I had to give up is that we buy a car every 10 or 12 years. It doesn't matter how much money you make, you always can outspend what you make. Uh, so, we, you know, so we lived in the same house for 15 years. We're probably going to be in that house for a long, long time. So that, those are the, when I say the word sacrifice, actually, it's not really a big sacrifice because to me, it's actually, I value the size of my house a lot less than I value going on you know, an extra vacation a year. I heard a story once that I think was about Madonna, that she was in some shop, like let's say like Gucci or Chanel mm-hmm. or something, at someplace extremely expensive where you could spend a large amount of money. Mm-hmm. And she was looking at um, some piece of jewelry. And she said, how much is it? And somebody next to her said, well, if you have to ask, then you can't afford it. You know, like, ha, 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 you're Madonna. And she said, if you don't ask at some point, you won't be able to afford it. Because everybody has a budget. I don't mm-hmm. know how much money you have. There is a point. <laughs> Look at like all the famous people who have gone bankrupt. There, Everybody has a budget. I don't care how much money you have coming in. We all have to make those prioritization decisions. And it's just a matter of how many zeros are on the end of it. I think that's exactly right. Okay, now I'm going to get back to investing and how you got there. 
Okay. Because you said you were 20 something and teaching investing already. And I'm cutting it there, you guys. We'll be back next week with the other half of my interview with Vitali, where he's going to talk about sleep and creativity and investing and happiness in life and all of that that goes into it. Thanks so much for listening. And we will be back next week with the other half. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, including show notes and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.